Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, good morning to those of you joining us from Asia, including our speaker. It's very, very early in the morning. Um, <laughs> yes. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to welcome Feng Xiaotong. Uh, Feng Xiaotong is a visiting scholar here at the Fairbank Center. Uh, sadly, of course, uh, visiting scholar means something very different in the COVID era than, than it has in the past and that uh, what we were hoping for, uh, for this year. Uh, he is a, uh, currently a PhD student at Tramei uh, Dash, I guess the Communications University of China. Um, uh, prior to, to that, he did his uh, MA at uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, uh, where he worked closely with an old friend of our center, Shen Zhihua. Uh, he has an interest in media, in international relations, but also in rural issues uh, and uh, rural history and rural questions. And that was the reason why uh, we invited him to be a visiting scholar uh, here at the Fairbank Center for the current year. As I said, un unfortunately, uh, much of what we usually offer to visiting scholars was, was we were not able to offer to Feng Xiaotong, but he's been working very hard nonetheless uh, from his base in, in, in Shenzhen. Uh, one of the things that we like to do with our visitors is give them a chance to present their work in progress to colleagues at the center. And we thought despite the um, uh, many obstacles in our work this year, there was no reason not, not to do that uh, again. So this is a, an informal seminar. There's no written paper uh, that Xiaotong is going, in which Xiaotong is going to present his work. I will make uh, some comments based on the presentation. There, as I said, there was no written paper. So my comments will be, will be brief. And then we will open the floor up for questions. Um, as usual, everyone's familiar with this. Please uh, submit your questions in the Q and A box, and uh, I will uh, moderate the questions. Uh, Feng Xiaotong will speak for about forty-five minutes, uh, maybe a little bit longer, uh, which should leave us uh, plenty of time for questions and comments and interactions. So, uh, without further ado, please. Uh, uh, join me in welcoming uh, Feng Xiaotong to present on his work in progress. Over to you, Xiaotong. Okay, thanks. So can you hear, can you see me, see my slides here right now? Hello, can you, can everybody no, we see can't, my... we, we can't see that. We can't see the slides yet. Okay, uh, I will share. There we go. My... Okay, there we go. Great. Okay, good. Okay, hello everyone. Good evening and good afternoon, friends here. My name is Feng Xiaotong, a PhD candidate of Communication University of China and a visiting scholar of Fairbank Center. Thank you for Professor Michael Zoni's generous guidance and thank you Mark and Nick for kindly help. Um, it is my great honor to have such an opportunity to share with you some of the investigations I've done in China rural areas. In 2017, the Chinese government formally proposed the Rural Revitalization Strategy. In previous study, most scholars have discussed it as the theme of China's domestic governance. For example, how rural revitalization has improved the living quality of Chinese peasants, 
how rural revitalization has protected China's ecological environment, and so on. But what I, what I want to talk about today is putting rural revitalization in an international context as what's stated in my title, why rural revitalization is China's ace dealing with the Western competition. What I said today may be a little bit challenging for some of you in this room, but I can ensure that every case I've mentioned today truly happened in China. I'm just offering a new perspective today, and I hope to have a full and free discussion with you in a Q&A session. Okay, we first need a theoretical framework for understanding China and the world before talking about rural revitalization from an international perspective. In the various theoretical models for international relations theory, I choose the uh, the world system theory based by Emmanuel Wallerstein, basing on the dependency theory. According to this theory, from the 16th century to the present, with the development of the capitalist model of production, the world gradually presents the characteristics of core, semi-periphery, and, perif and periphery world system structure. The core is the center and the leading part of the world system and the representative of the, of the advanced productive forces at that time. The core region's economic ad advantage ensures its control of trade and financial markets. Peripheral regions are that produce and export primary products and the raw materials. The semi-periphery region is located between the core and the periphery region. This area has the economic characteristic of both the core area and the periphery area. They are both on the edge of the core area and at the center of the periphery area. So the incense of the so-called comparative institutional advantage of the core countries is that the core countries have smoothly transferred the costs to the semi-periphery and periphery countries in the world system. It includes the political costs, economical cost and the environmental cost. In the capitalist world economy, the, these three roles are interrelated and indispensable because the capitalist world economy is based on the worldwide division of labor in which different regions of world economy are required to assume specific rules. As a result, they do not benefit equally from the operation of the world economic system. So, under this theoretical framework, we can explain the competition between China and the West as the following. China tries to move towards the core, while the United States and its allies try to prevent China from getting to the core. That's what today's world picture looks like. It is not so hard to understand if you put yourself in, in Americans' shoes. I think you would do the same. Similarly, if you are Chinese, you certainly do not want your surplus value to be taken away by other countries all the time, but sorry, by various means. There's no right or wrong, no, no good or bad, no, there's no any judgment. It, it is just a nature choice as long as you don't have any special interests here. Of course, those of you have, who have been following China's issue for a long time will surely know that China's relationships with the West cannot be evaluated by a simple binary opposition of good or bad. 
the competitions and the cooperation of industries, industries' technical roles between China and Western countries differ in various forms. Generally speaking, it is a process in that China moves forward from the periphery to the core, and the US and its ally prevent China from moving to the core. So here raises the question, what difficulties does China needs need to overcome if China wants to move to the core? First, in terms of economic fundamentals, China needs to face the crisis capital of Western countries. Just look, this is crisis capital, not crisis of capital in economic, uh, political economic. The first challenge is according to the basic principles of political economy, capital has an endogenous impulse to move from one country to the whole world and finally forming a global market. It means that the existing core countries and the semi-periphery countries continue to transfer the cost of financial dependence to China. Secondly, from the superstructure level derived from the economic foundation, China needs to face the soft power derived from the Western countries' comparative advantage in science, technology, economy, military, and social governance, etc. Thirdly, China needs to face the limitation of natural resources endowment in aspect of objective restriction conditions. Well, the green economy is not the point of this seminar, sorry. So I will focus on the first two points today. The relationship between these three challenges is illustrated in this picture. The first challenge is the most important one. At the end of Cold War, Western countries used their currencies as hard currency to monetize the huge amount of industrial equipment left behind by Soviet Union and East, Eastern Europe. Nowadays, Western countries are facing the problems of industrial hauling out. Western capital urgently needs to bring China's high quality real assets into Western monetary system to alleviate the potential crisis caused by a large amount of over insurance of money and debt. To achieve this goal, this goal Western countries use their soft power to constantly reduce the profit expectation of Chinese economy and even try to have some influence on Chinese political system. If financial liberation truly happened in China, there will be another Soviet tragedy. This year is the 30th, 30th anniversary of the collapse of Soviet Union. Our big brother, we Chinese call it big brother, Lao Da Ge, has used his life to teach us what not to do. So challenge one and challenge two support mutually like this. In the past, when Western countries shifted their industry into China, China also transferred, uh, I use my laser. China also transferred their costs as pollutions into domestic environment. We can see from this graph that both challenge one and challenge two are passing costs to the natural environment. So how will China confront the, these three challenges? The Chinese government's choice is rural revitalization. Well, Professor Michael Zoni has had repeatedly emphasized on many occasions that to do research, we must go to 
filed and contact different people. If scholars like us only stay in campus, following air conditioners, eating fruit, and only relying on reading papers to understand the world and understand how China operation, um, our research is not to say completely worthless. At least there's a big gap from the real world. So um, we need to talk to the scholars, officials, officials of different ranks, businessmen, peasants, and so on. In short, the more people we communicate with, the better we can understand this society. So um, only in this way we can we construct theoretical explanation that go beyond the superficial of the phenomena. Well, Professor has done five research in the southeast coastal areas of Fujian, areas of Fujian province and Taiwan province for more than 20 years. He can say that he is as familiar with the rural areas of Fujian coast as his garden. So me as his student in November and December of last year, I drove to Fujian to do my research. But something different is I deliberately choose a relatively more inland place Sanming city and its rural areas. So even if I say something wrong, I don't think you will immediately react to me. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> okay. When I did my final research, working in the countryside, standing on the right of terrace, sitting in the homes of residents, talking with local officials, chatting with villagers who have returned their hometown to start their business, I feel like I, I kind of understand the rural revitalization practice better. Um, okay, after that, I returned to Beijing to communicate with the relevant scholars and came to my conclusion, rural revitalization is one of China's true ways dealing with Western competition. This is what, what, I, what I just pictured in Sanming City. Uh, okay. Um, so to be more specific, rural revitalization has the following four important functions. Firstly, it resists imported financial risks, risks. Through rural revitalization, China can monetize domestic resources with domestic currency, preventing Chinese assets from being dollarized and let Chinese yuan be anchored on sovereign domestic resources. Secondly, rural revitalization can play the role of social stabilizer and make the whole of China become a sponge society, which can more effectively cope with employment pressure and urban crisis caused by economic fluctuations. Thirdly, through rural revitalization, China's rural areas can well absorb exceeds capacity and find new markets for unsaleable export orders. In addition, innovating the new development model between man-man and man-nature. Here, the first point corresponds to the first challenge. The second and the third point together correspond to the second challenge. And the fourth point corresponds to the third challenge. Uh oh, sorry. For more, for more than four decades after China's reform and opening up, the insurance of Chinese yuan was anchored to foreign currencies, especially the US dollar, to, to integrate into a global economy. For every dollar entered into China, the People's Bank of China, China issued additional Chinese yuan at the exchange rate. Therefore, some Chinese scholars and commentators believe that 
we should not run a foreign exchange deficit in any case. Otherwise, it will be impossible to guarantee the value of Chinese yuan. This is the recognition derived from the way that foreign exchange reserves are used to issue currency. In this view, China is doomed to be stuck with US dollar and to be held hostage by the US on a monetary level. Rural revitalization can help China gradually get rid of this dependence. Moreover, China also has the condition to introduce financial means into rural economy and to serve rural economy. Ning Jizhe, Vice Director of China's National Development and Reform Commission, has said that Chinese infrastructure investment in recent years has led to a massive increase in the value of these assets, amounting to about 1,300 trillion Chinese yuan. This is a big number. It objectively creates the fact that the conditions for transformation of the resources assets widely distributed in rural areas into tradable assets and preliminary. This provides pro important conditions for Chinese, for Chinese yuan to get rid of its dependence on the US dollar. At present, some regions in China have started experiments to value the ecological resources controlled by national sovereignty and turn them into the main files to absorb currency. China uses the monetary credits derived from its sovereignty to monetize resource assets. For example, China has the reform and the collective forest tenure system in Sanming city, which includes such experiments. Also, uh, I heard about another case, uh, Professor Wen Jin told me yesterday, another case about uh, is located in Inner Mongolia called Shulin-Zhizhen. Uh, they are also doing this, um, this experiment too. Okay, China takes the collective economic transformation of the village as the ecological resource management company. Uh, let me get my, uh oh, my laser. Okay, uh, of the village as the, um, as the ecological resource management company. Since the credit at the village level is too weak, the eco resources management companies formed by each village issue rural, revitalizing, rural revitalization bonds on trading platforms set by county level, county level government to absorb a large amount of surplus currency that does not enter the real economy. China's action of issuing bonds and currency is the, is the same as US, but Chinese bonds correspond to a real assets by buying rural revitalization bonds and currency, uh, sorry, by buying rural revitalization bonds, China's sovereign currency has shifted from anchoring a foreign currency to anchoring a sovereign ecological resource. In this way, Chinese yuan can gradually become a more hard, a harder currency. Moreover, China has a large number of functional departments at the county level. For example, every county has its own media platform and the county government has channels to release authoritative information and protect market expectation. It is of great significance. 
to manage the financial risks in the process of ecological resource monetization. Now, let's talk about the second and third points. Why rural revitalization can be a social stabilization, um, stabilizer for China and what kind of sponge society it will become. As we all know, exports have been very important to the Chinese economy in the past. But since the Trump administration launched a trade war against China, Chinese exporters have been hit hard in a short time period, at least a short time. This is not the first time that challenge has faced the threat of Western decoupling. Every year at Fairbank, Fairbank Center, there are many discussions about that thing happening in 1989, I know. Because of that, the United States led Western countries collective sanctions on China, since China had neither a large enough domestic market nor the, the experience to deal with it. The Chinese were suffering from the inflation at the moment and deflation at the next, just like a pendulum game. After, after a slow recovery, the Asian financial crisis came at the end of 1990s. Perhaps many young friends here do not have a direct impression of this, but I believe that our elder friends here certainly do not want to recall that period. But in short, urbanization in the blind has been shown by history to exacerbate social unrest caused by economic crisis rather than alleviate them. It is conceivable that China will face more economic shocks in the future competition with the United States. How to maintain social stability until China can enter, enter into a new historical stage, rural revitalization. The following two charts can clearly show why rural revitalization can turn China's rural areas into a social stabilizer and turn China into a, into a sponge-like society. Um, look at this. The government used various fiscal means to extract transfer payment, transfer payment from the cities and then support the welfare system in rural areas including building infrastructures of high, of high standards, providing employment opportunities in the process, and investing in education, healthcare, etc. Thus, the countryside can transfer young, skilled laborers into the cities and ensure food security. We all know that China has an ecological red line, a 1.8 billion are grain security red line. At this time, at the same time, cities also export capital and the market experience to countryside. This forms a cycle. So let's look at the second picture. The sponge, sponge society. When the economy is prosperous, young people from the countryside um, tend to move to cities in search of high paying jobs. When China faces an economic crisis and the city cannot provide enough jobs, the rural population in the cities will return to the countryside like this and bring back some cash, working experience, and a small business. It is well known that according to Chinese tradition, legitimacy really comes from elections, but mainly from the ability of those in power 
will provide a better life for all. If people go back to the countryside and still have a decent housing, a viable job, and education for their children, and easy access to medical care for elderly, the Chinese Communist Party will continue to be trusted by the vast majority of Chinese people. So I will elaborate in details with the case here, Shaxian snacks, Shaxian xiaoshi. Shaxian snacks were gradually grown up in, in the late 1990s because of the ancient financial crisis, foreign demand has fallen sharply and many people in Shaxian County who depend on export business have lost their business. So they gather together and play gamble. That's true, that's really true. But we know nine of, nine of 10 bets loss. So many people ran into debt and fled to other cities, but most of them don't have any lawful certification. So they cannot work in factory. What can they do? They decided to sell their local snacks. It is a hard job, it is. They had to work day and night, but at least they can make, make some money to survive. As a result, seeing the profits made by the starters, the starters family members start to join one by one and the Shaxian snacks business began to grow in the cities all over the China. After they made some money, they returned to their hometown. They returned to Shaxian. They, do not, they not only repaid the debts they owed, but also built several small buildings with good conditions and improved their living quality. This is, these are not the stories I imagined, but the stories the local told me. Of, co of course, after Shaxian snacks became popular, more and more people started entering the business, so problems emerged naturally. For example, the fake Shaxian snacks and the food hygiene issues. Later, the county government also paid attention to these things and made a unified plan. Now, Shaxian County has realized the comprehensive development of primary, secondary, and territory industries. And the local government rate, the local, sorry, the local employ, employment rate and the living standard become much better than before. Those extended families fulfilled some social welfare functions that government cannot co cover, such as using family funds to honor elders and help needy children. So whether the city's economy is good or bad, those extended families help to maintain a stable society. For the sake of time, if you're interested, we can discuss more details during Q&A, but in short, the function of rural areas as a social stabilizer is vividly demonstrated in Sunning City and Shaxian County. So let's, look, let's take a look at the third chart, how rural revitalization will absorb its capacity. Okay. Um, when when Western, Western sanctions are imposed on China, these, these uh, and Chinese exports are blocked, are blocked what happens to all these excess capacities? Through rural revitalization, rural areas will become more modernized and, and people's disposable income will increase. So the countryside has the consumption demand and the consumption ability. For a heavy industry, the government use mergers and acquisition, acquisitions 
directives and sub subsidies to revive heavy industry enterprise on building infrastructure. And it also prevents bankruptcy while providing local employment opportunities in rural areas. At the same time, the government has set up a platform to guide consumer goods makers to actively seek new markets in rural areas. That is why Chinese government's response to the competition from the West is mainly focused on the domestic cycle. In Chinese, we call it Rural revitalization provides China with a large enough domestic market. The more Western sanctions are imposed, the more competitive Chinese companies will become. The another case is from 2010. The financial crisis of 2008 led to a sharp slowdown in global economic growth. The global demand fell, and China inevitably suffered from overproduction. Many export orders were turned up and goods were sitting in warehouse. Consumer goods such as color, color TV, refrigerators, washing machines were a large number of unsellable. So in 2010, the Ministry of Commerce announced that all rural residents would receive a, an immediate 13% discount on purchasing these exportable, unexportable appliance. As a result, consumer enthusiasm in rural areas was immediately stimulated and the color TV ownership rate climbed to 104 units per 100 households. Note that this 13% discount, which was supposed to allow us export companies to encourage the creation of foreign exchange has been diverted to subsidize overseas consumers. When that 13% subsidy stopped it subsidizing exports and shifted to subsidizing Chinese peasants. Chinese economic growth shift, shifted, shifted from external demand and external in investment to domestic demand. Because China has invested a lot of infrastructure in rural areas, home appliance can be sold in the countryside. With the internet, roads, water, electricity, natural gas, Rural areas have moved out of poverty and they have the ability to consume. So when I standing at the roof, at the foot of the United Terrace, uh, where a four hour drive from downtown, Simon, I saw children playing mobile games together. This is a nightmare for us game players, but they're because they're extremely bad at the game. But it shows that the internet products can we can consume in the city, as well as the physical goods associated with the internet have a larger sales market. China's rural revitalization consciously or not consciously is trying to get out of the endogenous crisis of capitalism demonstrated by the political economy. No matter in China or any country in the world, as long as it is included in a current global economic system. It cannot get rid of the chaotic crisis caused by social mass production according to the existing production relations. Different differentiation of class, social, 
Social class is a gravity on seasonally. Labor capital contradiction conflicts become sharper day by day. Finally, industrial capital develops into monopoly capital, and monopoly capital becomes financial capital. The financial capital is then bound with the state power, which becomes what Lenin said: imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. However, Chinese rural revitalization not only restricts the free flow of financial capital and guides finance to serve social construction, but also slowly breaks the urban-rural dualistic opposition and turns the whole city, whole society, into a flexible organic whole. Let's go back to the modern modern world system at the beginning of this seminar. According to this theory, China moves towards to the core, and the U.S. and its ally prevent China. Note that this analysis is based on the capitalist mode of production. However, through our above analysis of rural revitalization, we find that rural revitalization is both a strat strategic conception and an ongoing practice of China. Maybe, I mean, just maybe, only maybe. China is slowly moving from the capitalist model mode of production, which the Chinese government calls the primary stage of socialism, to a higher dimension of production. Maybe, maybe we can call it ecological civilization. It is by no means a return to a past great agricultural society, but based on the existing history of industrial civilization, further upward. Based on a higher productivity, brick by brick, to pursue, to pursue the harmonious relationship between the social classes and the harmonious relationship relationship between man and nature. China will monetize its ecological resources and integrate more productive factors into production process to further liberate productive forces. At the same time. We should control the power of capital and guide it to play its benign role, so that it can serve the interests of the whole society rather than interests of only a few people. So, what China really wants to do is this. I think let's look at this picture, just like that.、Uh, from the top down, from the top down, China seems. To be trying to move from the periphery to the core, but if we look from another side, look from another side, China may be trying to move to a higher dimension. In international relations studies over the past few years, there has been much discussion of great power games, such as the well-known Thucydides trap, the New Cold War, and so on. But if we look at Look at it from this diagram's point of the of view. It is clear that these traps may be occur in some specific areas. China's response to the competition from the West is not to play a zero-sum game with the West, but to improve ourselves. That is why rural revitalization is China's ace dealing with Western competition. Yes, of course, there's no denying that the process. Will be arduous and fraught with problems. For example, many of our local government credit rating agencies 
are operated by foreign companies. What if one day they suddenly downgrade their credit rating at the same time? For example, when we are, when we are monetizing ecological resources, will financial risks be transferred to rural areas due to information asymmetry or poor management? To be honest, there's no certain answer. And still I'm keeping observing. Sometimes there will be a price to be paid, a very heavy price to be paid. Chinese competition with the West is complex. The relationship between China and the West is conducted under the framework of multiplying constraints. My speech today is just to provide a new perspective for you. And I look forward to have more interaction with you in the future research. Okay, this is the end of my speaking. Thank you all for your listening. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask me and we can have a free discuss. discuss. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Xiaotong. Uh, you can hear me, you can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Great, okay. Um, thanks very much for, for a great, uh, presentation. Um, the uh, uh, I, I think you you made a. Uh, oh, let me first of all, first of all say that I will I will offer some commentary based just on what we've just heard. Probably I'll speak for five or ten minutes or so, leaving us about half an hour for questions. Uh, if you want to, if, if members of the audience uh, want to uh, uh, start uh, uh, raising questions. Uh, please do so, and we'll we'll get to them uh, in a moment. As soon as my as soon as my remarks are uh, are done, uh, let me first of all say, Xiaotong, uh, uh, I think you made a big mistake. Uh, it's one o'clock here in North America, so the conversation about Shashian snacks was very distracting. I uh, was immediately <laughs> thinking about my favorite Shashian snacks, which of course I cannot I cannot have. I don't think I don't think Shashian snacks have made it to the U.S., but certainly that's a that's a, 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 a big part of my rural experience. Anyways, let's get let's get let's get to the paper. So, um, as you say, uh, rural revitalization was proposed as a formal policy some years ago. Uh, it's not a new concept. Um, uh, Professor Wen Tiajun, who you who you um, who you referenced a moment ago, traces it back actually into the 1890s. Uh, and talks about uh, Zhang Jian's efforts in Nantong as an early form of uh, rural revitalization. So it's a new it's a it's a new term, but uh, or a new policy. The term's not new, and the actual practice is, is not new. And there's been a huge amount of scholarly discussion uh, and policy related discussion about um, rural revitalization. Um, what is new, I think, uh, uh, in your work is uh, how you situate re rural revitalization in relation to uh, a much broader and indeed global context, and in particular uh, to a, what we might call a kind of global security international relations context. Um, this is fascinating to me. I've, I've never really thought about it this way. I don't think this is part of the general discourse around rural revitalization. So this is a great topic for a PhD because it is new and it's interesting and it's important. Um, unfortunately, the elements that are most innovative in your presentation 
are precisely the ones that I understand the least. So a lot of my comments today are, are going to be about places where I think you could make this research more accessible to non-experts like myself. Um, but that's, unfortunately, that's, that's, I can't comment with any expertise on the financial element of the, of the uh, or even some of the economic elements of the argument. So I'm gonna just do what I'm able to do. Um, so let's start with the, the strategic context. Uh, the, the presentation is very nicely structured with a kind of theoretical method and then a, a, a text. I don't think it really matters uh, these uh, frameworks are all that useful. I don't think it matters too much to the larger argument, these frameworks, but since you, since you raised them, um, let me just say, I found the, the argument, the initial framing about uh, China moving from the periphery to the core and the United States trying to prevent this, not entirely convincing. Um, the, the, uh, it may be true that, so, so the first part is convincing. Um, it may be true that there are elements in the United States that would prefer to see uh, China remain on the periphery or the semi-periphery, um, but capital uh, doesn't have a strategy. And um, U.S. business, I think, would would uh, would I think if you if you um, if you could magically require all your informants to be completely honest with you and transparent, well, some of the political leadership might say that trying to prevent the U.S. the China from moving to the core of the global economy is in their agenda. That's not how how U.S. business thinks. Um, China is the source of um, much of the market growth uh, in the global economy. Uh, uh, China is the um, source of considerable innovation in the global economy. Um, I think to say that the US, both the government sector and the corporate sector, try to prevent uh, a kind of Wallersteinian process. I, I don't think that's, um, uh, uh, I don't find that totally convincing. Um, Chateau, just to be clear, I'm going to raise a couple of questions, concerns as we go along, and then I'll let you answer as many of them as you like. So I'm going to raise five or six questions, I think, by the time I'm done, but you don't have to answer okay. any of them. They're just, it's more in the way of commentary because this is a, 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 a doctoral seminar. Um, so you then move on to um, the question of what China needs to do. Um, and I, I actually thought that, uh, that, that, this, this made pretty good sense to me. Um, you are using um, soft power here as a strategic tool that the United States uses to transfer uh, costs back to China. Um, that's pretty far from what Joe Nye meant when he coined the term soft power. I think you're using soft power in a pretty different way from him. Uh, it, it may be more call. Anyways, I'd like to hear you define what you mean by soft power. All right, so now let's, let's uh, move on to the uh, characteristics of, the, of, of rural revitalization. And I'm just, you, you talk about four elements 
And I'm just gonna raise one or two points about each of those. So the first is, actually it's very helpful the way you're proceeding through the slideshow, that's great. Can you go down one or two more slides? I'd like to see the, yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, let's stop, let's stop there for a minute. Um, so I found this because of my lack of knowledge of, of economics and finance, a little hard to follow. Um, you might, you might want to think about how to present it for a non-expert audience. But one thing that I was, I think, um, uh, confident about, about questioning here is whether you can make this claim without situating rural bond issues in relation to overall financial flows. Um, I actually, I would, I would wonder um, and indeed, not just overall financial flows, but larger uh, uh, reforms to the financial sector in China. We had an interesting presentation last week at the Fairbank Center on um, the implications of the issuing of digital currency and some changes to the capital account. Um, I'm confident that this is an accurate description of what's going on in the rural bond market. But is this 1% of financial flows? 10% of financial flows, 50% of financial flows. Uh, if it's 1%, it can be completely accurate. It's still not gonna protect China against imported financial risks. Um, the second characteristic of rural revitalization is as a social stabilizer. Um, that's a, that's a, a, a very, uh, um, a very, uh, a very eloquent formulation. The less eloquent formulation is that the, the, the Chinese state continues to use the rural areas as a dumping ground for its problems, as a dumping ground for unemployment, as a dumping ground for environmental challenges, as a, and, and so on. Um, what struck me about your conversation here was you said nothing about land rights. And land rights is usually quite a significant part of the conversation. So the question is really, do you think that, that in terms of your model of, did you just decide not to mention it? Or do you think that land rights actually are no longer important in the social stabilization function of, of, of rural areas? Um, the third characteristic rural revitalization to absorb over, over production, um, you know, a great, uh, a great, no, move past that slide, please, quickly. Um, the, the, uh, 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 no, no, we don't want to see the Shashian snacks there. Stay there. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, uh, so, so, you know, I can totally see how your comments here fit into ideas about the dual track economy and, and encouraging domestic consumption, dual track consumption. Um, here again, um, I have a question about demonstrating significance. So you've sh shown very well with your anecdotes and your field work, the high level of market integration. Um, and anyone who's been in rural China, I mean, in Fujian now, of course, there's been this policy for the last decade or so to ensure that every village has a paved road. Um, and obviously that's huge for these villages integration into the, into the market. 
Um, you know, there are stories of the Alibaba villages and the delivery by drones and so on. This is all, I think, I think that, that uh, in terms of market integration, that's very well demonstrated in your paper. But again, similar to my first point, given continuing income inequality, urban relative to rural relative to urban, also given the well-known higher propensity of saving of rural residents, does market integration really matter in the absorption of overproduction? That is to say, if rural people are spending less and spending more, making less and spending less, how significant is the absorption of overproduction? Again, this is not to say you're wrong, uh, but rather to call on you to demonstrate more effectively and more thoroughly the significance of your findings, right? So all of this, all everything in this slide could be could be could be everything in the slide except the the two clouds could be absolutely correct, right? The two clouds at the bottom left and lower right um, that wouldn't necessarily demonstrate the significance to um, to to um, uh, to the to the to the larger global context that that you know so it might make uh, 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 rural revitalization an element of China's competition with the West, but not sure how important it is. Um, all right, two or three last comments. Um, so. One of the ways in which I think um, uh, a doctoral dissertation proceeds slightly differently in, in, in the US and in China is that, is that your argument is both descriptive and prescriptive. And in fact, you, you actually nicely pointed out this yourself when you described rural revitalization as both an ongoing practice and as a strategy, um, the 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 actually maybe I, maybe I don't need to distinguish between PhDs in the U.S. and China. That observation may also be true of PhDs, some PhDs in the, in the in the U.S. But what I will say is, I think the burden of proof. So you've got these two op, two two approaches going on simultaneously. And the burden of proof for the two approaches is slightly different. For the descriptive element, all you have to do is show me that you are right. But for the prescriptive element, show me that you're right and that this is the best possible approach and that no other possible approaches to solving the problem are better. I don't think you, there, there's no, there's no, there's nothing really wrong with the way you, you handle that, that dual track approach in your presentation. But I just wanna suggest that as you write this up, you think about these two different kinds of requirements. Um, finally, um, a broader comment that, that sort of links this. Oh, sorry, I, I didn't talk yet about the, sorry, one, two last points. I didn't talk yet about fourth element of rural revitalization, which is this idea of a new development model. And here you very much 
converge with. Uh, so I said everything. A lot of things about your presentation have been have been very novel and innovative to me. At least I wasn't familiar with them. On this fourth point, you do converge with a broader literature. Um, the uh, the the your discussion of the last point made me made me think of Professor Wen's uh, recent speech at at AAS um, at the Association of Asian Studies. Um, I do think it's worth thinking a little bit about the degree to which this new model is an external vision. It's a vision created by bureaucrats and by urban elites and intellectuals. And to ask a little bit about what China's rural people really want to do. I think it's not wrong to ask, as you did in this slide, what China really wants to do. But I'm curious what you think the rural reaction would be. Finally, on a related note, um, whenever, I, whenever I hear about um, government involvement in rural revitalization, I think back to uh, another founding figure. I mentioned Zhang Jian in, in the late Qing, but another important figure in rural revitalization, of course, is Liang Shuming, who, who was very active in the 1920s. And he said, uh, it's not an exact quote, but, but I, I vaguely remember what he said. Um, he wrote that, that the Chinese countryside is like, or the Chinese people, nomin, are like tofu, are like tofu, and government power is like an iron hook. Um, and maybe the people with the hook have the best of intentions to help the tofu, but, but maybe it would be better if they didn't try to help the tofu, because if they do, the tofu is sure to be, to be damaged and injured. And so I guess this is, again, not a criticism of your paper so much as an invitation for you to talk a little bit more about the implications of this model for rural people uh, and possibly some of the uh, consequences, negative and positive, on rural life. All right, I will stop there. Thank you again for a, for a great stimulating paper. Um, I see that uh, we have a couple of questions. Um, Xiaotong, do you, want to, um, do you want to respond to my comments or do you wanna think about my comments and go directly to the questions of the audience? It's totally your choice. Uh, I'd like to, to respond to few of, uh, some of your comments. Uh, yes, uh, by yes. all means, don't respond to all of them. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you have mentioned about uh, how rural people really think about the rural revitalization. Well, um, I'd like to provide two different, um, two different cases. Maybe you can have a, um, um, and the first is what I, uh, what I, have, what I have met in Sunning City and the, the Xiaxia. Uh, when I'm talking some, something with uh, the locals about the government, uh, what the government do for you, and what the Chinese Communist Party do for you. Uh, well, their response to me is that they, they pretty, um, generally speaking, they think um, our government helped them to build the road and provide 
um, the education opportunity and medical care is a good thing. Um, so if, you, if you're talking about how rural people uh, think about that, uh, in, East Coast, in the East Coast, well, generally speaking, it's positive. Another case is uh, I discussed with, um, with my roommate who was, um, who was an officer um, in a local government in the western of Hunan. Well, um, he worked in a very, very poor village. And um, what he told me, um, the reaction from the, uh, from the rural people and the local residents is comparatively positive also. Because in recent years, um, the government invests a huge amount of money and investigation, in also including infrastructure, to help them um, improving their living quality. So maybe they never think about uh, they never think about such a huge strategy strategy or something else, but they really get the something good during this process. So their reaction, uh, as for me, what I get is positive. Okay, um, maybe. Maybe if I speak in Chinese, maybe I, I will clarify more clear. But next, then let's move to the next um, next commands. Is that um, the land right uh, you have mentioned? Uh, yes, I um, I didn't I did not mention the land right here. Land rights is truly um, very important, very 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 important matters during during this process. Um, um, also, I have discussed with the locals. Well, the, um, here's, a, here's a problem. It's um, just what I said and what we can see. We can see um, the Chinese government invest so many infrastructure in, in the rural areas. However, however, the government cannot manage them well. This is, this, there's no right or wrong, just they don't have this ability to manage all the roads, all the rivers, all the bridge. Well, um, so um, there's an experiment what I mentioned in the, um, in the Inner Mongolia, Shulinzhi uh, village. They're trying to, uh, they, are, they are having an experiment to trying to transfer uh, somehow the land right, uh, like um, just what I posed here. Here, I, I have mentioned a multiply PPP. They are using, uh, they are using this, kind of, uh, mm, this kind of way to, to PPP their land right to the collective economy or to the government. Well, that's, a, that's still a very com, um, compli complicated problem. Yes. Um, okay, I'd like to answer some of the questions come from the audience. All right, great. Um, okay, so let me let me um, uh, start with one actually that that flows very nicely out of your last response. Um, Sam Jackson asks, uh, "Thank you, Xiaotong. I'm curious about how rural revitalization advances social stability. 
Do you think people are willing to relocate to the countryside or are they being forced out of the cities in a manner that may increase tensions? It seems that rural revitalization is being promoted to sustain unequal urban relations and prevent more people in the cities. Is it being promoted to hide the disparities created by the Huco system? An interesting question. Xiaotong? <clears throat> well, uh, I think this is two questions. Uh, <clears throat> first, I'd like to, to answer the, the, the first one, is uh, whether they are willing to stay in the, um, in the countryside area. Well, uh, in recent years, um, but I mean, how to say, um, actually the living quality in the, in the rural areas, they don't have the huge difference or huge gap with their, their uh, with their downtown. They don't have a, such a huge gap. For example, what, I, what I've mentioned, uh, the Xiaxian, the Xia County, their living quality, um, there's not a, a big difference with what happened in Sanming city, in Sanming downtown, in Sanming urban, urban areas. They can play the video games and everything, um, everything in Sanming. Also, they can play uh, in, in rural areas. Besides, besides um, maybe uh, for, many, uh, for many people who come from the rural areas, they come to a city to look for a high paid job. But sometimes the city will not offer such job to them because of the uh, economic crisis or something else. So what, what is their choice? They have to go back. But when they go back, they will bring back some money, some working experience, and still they can do some small business here. For example, uh, maybe they could earn about 8,000 yuan in city uh, in the past, but after they, but after they go back to the countryside, um, maybe they will earn only 4,000 yuan per month. However, they don't have to work for such a long time. Uh, I think you must know that uh, now, uh, for many young, young men or, or young people living in the cities, uh, they are complaining about they have to work for a very, very long time. So, but if they go back to the countryside, they don't have to work such long time. So um, there's no right or wrong. Um, this is their nature choice. And, I, and one of my um, interviewers in Shaxie, he just come back from Beijing. And because uh, he felt a little bit tired, because um, so he bring back the cash and money to come back to, to the countryside to take care about his, his mom and enjoying his rest of his life. So that's a major choice. And a second, uh, as for you're talking about the hukou system, well, um, this is not, I'm not expertise of this. And I have some discussion with the of officers, local officers, but uh, I don't think I can answer you this question uh, very professional. So I'm sorry. Yes, that's it. Great, thank you. So I'm actually because because I am your advisor, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, jump in actually and respond to your response. That's not okay. you know always always the way, but this is a a visiting fellow present seminar rather than a formal presentation uh, than a presentation of an academic paper. Um, 
So let me just say two things about your response. Um, the first is that, um, well, it may be true that people in Beijing or Shanghai and people in Sanmingzhen or Sanmingshi and people in villages under Sanming can all play the same video games. Um, that's very different from claiming that uh, their opportunities and life prospects are similar. Um, it, it is, and in fact, I think that actually, so the, the biggest thing that struck me about that answer was China is moving towards an information economy. Um, education is um, more and more and more and more important. Um, there's a there's a really interesting new book uh, by uh, Scott Rosell and, and a co-author whose name I've forgotten. I'll send it to you in a minute, um, which suggests that disparities in education uh, continue to be a, a profound inequality between urban and rural China. It's not necessarily something that's going to pop up in an interview, but is is profoundly shaping the life chances of um, of of rural versus urban people. Um, on the issue of choice, um, so I've always understood one of the reasons why migrants will return to the village, one of the impulses is that uh, on the, on the, with the money they have saved from working in the city, they can enjoy a first-class standard of living in the rural areas, which they can't enjoy, uh, you know, you don't you don't live a very a very um, a, a, you don't live a life that people envy with eight thousand yuan in Beijing, but with eight thousand Beijing in a in a rural part of northern northeastern Fujian, you've got a you've got a pretty pretty good thing going. Um, so you're not wrong that it's people's choice. Are structural that need to be part of your analysis. And actually, I see that we've just got a question from a, an anonymous uh, uh, speaker that, that relates to this, uh, I think. Can you say something about healthcare and insurance in relation to rural revitalization? Um, healthcare. Well, uh, first, Still, I'm not a professional. I'm not an expert on that, but I can share something. Um, something I know um, to, to you is that well, um, well, actually, uh, in in recent years, our, uh, the Chinese government really, really put uh, their attention to this problem. So, just just for example, um, what I mentioned the case before about the in Western Hunan. Well, um, because the place, that place is too far away from, uh, from the city. So um, which, um, what the government do is um, shifted the whole village uh, or the migrants, the whole village into um, a comparative nearby um, place so that um, maybe they can take a good, uh, a comparative medical care um, than before. But 
I'm not an expert on this, so I can't answer this many specific. Sorry. Okay. So, so it's actually it's a that that um, this this issue of I know I've forgotten the term in Chinese. This issue of mm -hmm. rural relocation, where they where they com consolidate the villages and put them all in one uh, uh, multi-story building, um, is a, is a great example of the complexities of this issue and, and my interest in the kind of rural reaction, because on the face of it, of course, these buildings are much better, right? They have running water, yeah. they have electricity, they're much more modern. Um, yeah. but, the, but the reaction of villagers has been very mixed. <laughs> uh, and, and part of the reaction, part of the reaction has to do, of course, with, with, with the element of compulsion, uh, that they don't, get, they don't get to choose their, their life. Um, so we have about five or six minutes left uh, and one question. If anyone else has another question, please type it in now. Otherwise, I will ask the last question, which actually takes us back to the larger sort of global context in which you are trying to situate your argument, which is that this is, can be seen as a response to global pressures. So another anonymous attendee writes, um, hasn't China already moved to the core uh, the U.S. It's the it's the second largest economy. It's going to be the largest soon. Uh, the U.S. supported China's entry into the WTO, allowed uneven trade and tariff policies favorable to China for many years. That's beginning to change, of course. Um, but has the U.S. stopped China from moving to the core? So this this uh, attendee asks says the narrative of the West is keeping China down. It doesn't seem to fit. What's your reaction to that? Um, I wonder if you could, if you could, if you could, if you could try to answer the question in relation to your research. So let's not sort of get 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 lost in a in a kind of purely uh, uh, black and white argument about whether the West wants to help China or hurt China. How does your research help us better answer a, a comment like that or? Um, well, actually, if we want to um, want to answer this question, I think we need to briefly go back to the uh, to the end of the Cold War. Uh, due to the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Union and Eastern Europe collapse, so you know that um, the Western country absorb a large amount of assets from the, uh, from the Soviet Union and the Eastern Europe. So we can see the Western uh, economic has prospered for, um, for a long time, at least for 10 or 20 years. Uh, I'm not saying that um, because of the, um, the Soviet Union collapse, um, the Western countries will raise an economic risk up, um, but it is interrelated. So, but well, as uh, when we come to the to the, to the present, uh, we can see that the um, the Western industry is holding out for a long time. Just what we can see in this pandemic. So. Um, um, the Western countries do need to rely on China, but at the same time, 
they don't they do not want China to grow up uh, such quickly. This is not um, their subjective willingness because China also have a huge amount of um, exceeds capital. So I think this is a kind of a competition um, between two, uh, be between somehow two power. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe later I can explain this question to you in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's 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 great, and I think actually your 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 comment that you could you you could you could respond to this comment with simple reference to Realpolitik and say um, that purely on the on the basis of rel relative power, this is a sensible strategy, whether or not it's a, an informed strategy, a conscious strategy. Um, we are actually at time. It is almost two in the morning in China. Uh, I am getting yeah. the dreaded unstable internet connection uh, <laughs> sign. So I think it's probably time for us to stop. Uh, thank you to the participants for showing your uh, interest thank you very and much. support in, in Feng Xiaotong's work. Thank you so much, uh, Feng Xiaotong, for this fascinating introduction to a really promising uh, PhD dissertation. Uh, I promise uh, we will give you the chance when you, when the dissertation for you to deliver an updated presentation in person. Thank you so much. And, thank you. Uh, thank you all for, for attending. And please continue to attend our Fairbank Center events.